We come now to look at objections. What objections usually come up against election and predestination, or that particular doctrine that comes out of Scripture? We have been using Genesis 25-23 and the struggle in Rebecca's womb to demonstrate a springboard for what the New Testament demonstrates as election, as well as Malachi. The text states, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Remember that the word meant to crush or oppress. Why was this the case? Well, God himself told her this. God himself told Rebekah this particular point, that Jacob had been chosen over Esau, that God's plan of loving Jacob over Esau had a purpose. Now, in springboarding from that particular text, we do want to talk about a number of objections against election and reprobation, how predestination works biblically in and of itself. The objections are the same objections in essence as stated in Romans 4. It deals with the competence of God, the fairness of God, the severity or cruelty that seems to be being portrayed by God. Now, the Arminian view, or just simply the secular humanist view, which are basically one and the same, is important to understand in order to understand these objections. So we want to first speak about how such a view in the church came to be even today. Pelagius and Augustine, during the latter 300s, early 400s, dealt with the problem of the sinfulness of man. When you deal with the Arminian view or the secular humanist view of predestination and election, you're really dealing with Pelagianism. Pelagius said that Adam's sin did not affect the human race. Adam's sin was Adam's sin. Your sin is your sin. My sin is my sin. Augustine dealt extensively in his Pelagian writings against Pelagius and demonstrated the imputation of Adam's sin to all of humanity. Pelagius thought in this particular realm, since God has commanded that men should repent, men in and of themselves have the capability to repent. Otherwise, God would never have told them to repent. Augustine, though, demonstrates that God never stops speaking to humanity, even though they had fall. He never stopped speaking to them in some other way, or other than the way he has always spoken to them. Do this and live. Simply because they are not able to do this and live, as was instructed Adam, doesn't mean that God suddenly changes his plan as a result of man's sin. In turn, later, Pelagianism which comes straight from the pit of hell, affected other theologians and doctors throughout church history, of which we find Arminius being the greatest of these. Now, Arminius was semi-Pelagian. He lived during the latter part of the 1500s into the early 1600s. He was a very deceitful man. He would, out of one corner of his mouth, say that he was going to uphold the Belgic Confession and the information held therein as scriptural, and then out of the other corner of his mouth would hand out pages to his students, in which he was a teacher, concerning these other ideas that he had concerning election and predestination. He taught prevenient grace, just in case election and predestination was not true. He taught the doctrine of conditional election, that election is based on what men do, based on foreknowledge, which means that men could be eternally lost. Now remember, this kind of idea came from Pelagius. Pelagius said that grace was okay, and it's good to have grace, but men didn't need grace in order to be saved. They could be saved in and of their own merit. Now, Arminius didn't go that far, but he was semi-Pelagian. He believed that men, in and of their own strength, would be able 
to save themselves or receive Christ. And then after they made such a decision, then the Holy Spirit would come and give them regeneration as a result of their choice. Now, if we look through church history, you find people believing prevenient grace, that grace comes to all men before salvation comes, so that they all have a chance to repent and believe, and somehow this is in of their own strength with this special kind of enabling grace that allows them to do so. Well, advocates of this particular view, such as Pelagius, such as Arminius, such as Wesley, John Wesley, Charles Finney, people like Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, these are the ones who affect, because of their charismatic nature, people in the church in which waves of bad theology float across because there are lots of people who follow their charismatic influence. Arminius was especially good at this in raising up secular humanists to follow him as a result of the kind of religion that he was propagating. But really, when you put it up against those who taught election and predestination in the scriptural and biblical basis that the Bible gives us, you have advocates such as Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, Francis Turretin, Theodore Beza, all of the Puritans, in terms of all the good Puritans, such as Christopher Love and John Owen, James Usher, the uh, Netherland, Holland preachers, such as Wilhelmus Abrakel, you're talking about the American Puritans, or those Americans that brought over Puritan theology, such as Samuel Davies and ultimately Jonathan Edwards, sometimes people would be looking at such a list and say, well, it's not really fair to pit people such as Pelagius and Arminius and Finney against people like Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, Dabney, Calvin, Turretin, Luther, and all of these other reformers. Well, you have to stop and pause a moment and really think that the the views concerning election and predestination that are dominant throughout historical theology are those of the biblical nature of them concerning election and predestination as taught in the writings of such men. These are the preachers that God has given us that we might hear the truth of the gospel. Those who come out and twist or turn or advocate a different gospel are in this other list. Pelagius, Arminius, Wesley, Finney, Graham, Sunday, Moody, and others of like mind. And when we look at people like this, we, we should not be surprised that these men and their theological views give rise to people like Rick Warren and Benny Hinn and Joel Olstein and Kenneth Copeland and the other secular humanists that label themselves as Christians. The biblical stance historically, historical theology demonstrates very clearly that the views that are biblical, scriptural, proven, and exegetical stand with this list of preachers and theologians that demonstrate the Reformation, that demonstrate early church history such as Augustine and his writings, demonstrate the, the intellectual giants such as the Puritans and Edwards, Hodge, and Dabney, these demonstrate the truth of the scripture. In looking at the objections that come out of the camp of the Pelagian or semi-Pelagian have all been dealt with by what we'll deem as those purporting election and predestination biblically. So what I want to do is I want to go through the various objections and the objections are going to take us through eight main objections that regularly come out of the semi-Pelagian, Pelagian or Arminian camp that have been dealt with already by faithful men such as Luther and Calvin and the Puritans and Edwards and so forth. And I'm going to show you here how these particular views really are no objections at all. 
and basically are just a bad exegetical attempt, or rather an eisegetical attempt, at twisting scripture in some way or another because they've taken it out of context, and they've written books like Dave Hunt has written and Norman Geisler has written that are just absolutely pathetic in terms of exegeting the scriptures faithfully. The first objection is from the love of God, that God loves the whole world. John 3.16, that God gave his only begotten Son. He loves the whole world. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 is utilized out of the context of Jesus' didactic teaching when this objection comes up, saying that, no, God doesn't just love a few people. In fact, he loves all people. As a matter of fact, every individual. And this demonstrates, John 3.16, a proof text for God's saving love for the entire world. However, neither the context, nor the grammar, nor the specific use of the words so and gave allow for a general love of all men in John chapter 3. The text reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, the article, the Greek article, gar, which means for, denotes the information previous in the conversation which Jesus is expounding to Nicodemus. It's the immediate context which is taken from the Old Testament ideas. The author of this particular love is God. And the four emphasizes everything that Jesus has just taught Nicodemus thus far. It's an Old Testament text idea that the Spirit of God gives birth to spirit. It's an Old Testament idea that men in and of themselves are not able to be born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot spiritually perceive anything about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus has already told Nicodemus this, and this whole idea of being born again is an Old Testament idea, which is exactly why he says to Nicodemus in John 3.10 that you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand the basics of these things concerning God's regenerating power that must come upon a person first, because unless he is born again, he will not be able to perceive anything concerning the kingdom of God. So, when we get to John 3.16 and we have the article 4, and we start talking about the author of this unbelievable love, this has contextual implications. The first 10 verses, the first 15 verses of John, must be understood in order to understand John 3.16. So, if one doesn't understand regeneration preceding faith, one is not going to understand John 3.16. The author of the love is God. The grammar is literally, so loved God. The word hutas is emphatically used in this expression, so. He so loved. He didn't just love, but he so loved. It's not a general love, but an emphatic love, which is, there's no other love that's higher than this love. So the so stresses the aorist tense of the verb, agapasen. And the agapasen, or the love, is heightened by the adverb, so. He didn't just love, he so loved. And it denotes the degree of intensity of the verb to be stated. As is often noted, the phrase as a whole, for God so loved the world, is a clause that's attached to another subordinate result clause. For God so loved the world that he gave. And this is important, since it causes the phrase to stand on its own, except for the connection between the last verse and the word for. So we have that God not only loved, but because of all this stuff concerning Nicodemus and Jesus talking about regeneration preceding faith, for God so loved the world. This is what God did. He didn't only love the world, he so loved it. Loved is used here as it is often in the writings of John. John uses it in 1423, 1723, 1 John 3.1, 1 John 4.10. It's used of God's love for his elect. In 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in that 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.4 If this love in John 3.16 is so great to be used towards the whole world, this would actually cause the love of God to the whole world to be greater than the love he has for his elect because of the intensity of this adverb in this word, so. But the Savior states in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. So if this is true, then the love which is spoken of in John three sixteen is the greatest love. There is no other love greater than this, because it's talking about giving God's only Son. Thus, if that's true, and no greater love can be exemplified than this love which causes one to lay down one's life for his friends, then the world of necessity is universally saved, since God so loves it. But we know that this is certainly not true. It is true, though, that the love which is stated here is the greatest love God ever had, but it is for his elect. The object of the word love is ton cosmon, which means the world. Now the word world cannot be loosely translated as meaning everyone for all time, including those who have already perished. For some reason, some of these Pelagian, semi-Pelagian theologians come in and they say, look, the world means everyone. Well, it doesn't mean everyone in hell, so it's already limited in that sense. No one would ever grant that it includes all men in hell, or those who had previously been in hell before the time of the crucifixion. Certainly not. So they're already misinterpreting their idea because they want to place a blanket universal world meaning all men for all time no matter what and that God actually loves those people as well in hell would actually go against everything that the scripture talks about concerning God's justness, holiness and righteousness you cannot use the word world loosely the Westminster Assembly in meeting together concerning election and predestination said much concerning this verse but Samuel Rutherford one of the Scott commissioners and Seaman N. Gillespie contended and demonstrated the word world as meaning the elect and they presented the idea to the assembly and the assembly accepted their proposition concerning God loving the world as God loving the elect and it was noted in detail in the minutes because the consensus was for the assembly to move forward with the meaning of John 3.16 as particular for the elect only because the passage as a whole teaches this what does it mean for example to give the son for all of these other things concerning regeneration preceding faith. God so loved the world, not only just loved, but so loved that he gave. What does it mean to give? Well, this idea of giving is nothing less than the entirety of the work of Christ in his incarnation, work, death, resurrection, resurrection, and intercession. He gave his son for those whom he so loved. That's the elect. God's Son, at the right hand of the Father, is interceding on behalf of all those for whom he so loved. And he doesn't do that for those in hell. And he doesn't do that for those he's going to damn. He is the high priest, just like the Old Testament high priest, on behalf of his people, is interceding on behalf of his elect. But what about this little word, this word, whosoever? It's important to make note of the word whosoever. Whosoever believes. The word whosoever, when we see it in the text, it's often rendered this way, that whosoever believes shall have everlasting life. And so there's an appeal made by poor theologians to the whosoever, and that it's anyone, anyone for all time. The gospel is certainly a whosoever believes gospel, but it's a whosoever believes gospel, which in context talks concerning those whose regeneration precedes faith and who are loved by God. Again, this is an Old Testament idea, Nicodemus. 
you should understand it. You're Israel's teacher. And so Jesus comments on the Old Testament idea of believing. There is a more important note, though, to make concerning this idea of this little phrase, whosoever believes, is that whosoever is linked with believing. And there is no whosoever in the Greek text. It's a participle. And basically what that means is that it's the believing ones. So the appeal should be made to the believing ones, not just simply whosoever believes. In Old English, which is where we get whosoever in the King James Version, these ideas are exactly the same. The believing ones are whosoever believes. The believing ones. So the believing ones, those who believe, will have eternal life. So how do they believe? They believe by being regenerated first, then having faith. Thus, we see that God's election still stands. Because God loves the world. He doesn't just love the Jews, but he also loves the Gentiles. The problem of God loving the whole world in relation to Esau, Pharaoh, and Judas is a great problem. Because God did not love Esau, Pharaoh, and Judas. But specifically, the scripture says that he hated Esau. And he hated Pharaoh. And that Judas was the son of perdition, the son of his hatred, the son of being eternally preterated. Rather, when we look at the world, it's the understanding of both Jew and Gentile in John's Gospel. John 17.9 says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. It's not that everyone is universally God's children. Rather, only those whom God elects are his children. And Pelagian and Semipelagian teachers say that all those people in the world, we are all God's children in this sense that we all have been given this special grace to believe, and so all we have to do is exercise our own free will, and thus as a result of exercising our own free will, we will then be saved. God will then regenerate us, and based on that faith that we have, he then elects us. God is the eternal cosmic bellhop that then is waiting for us so that he can carry our suitcases to our room. Ephesians 2.3 says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We were children of wrath, which is what all men are under the condemnation of Adam, but because Pelagius denied this, and Arminius was infected with Pelagius' ideas, this idea of the universal children of God problem comes up because they misunderstand our nature. But as many as received him, like water in a glass, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So these scriptures demonstrate that it's not by our flesh, it's not by our will. It's that basic principle that God elects. You're not going to be able to take John 3.16, take it out of its exegetical context, and make it say something that it doesn't say. The world is peoples, not individuals. And it demonstrates that God not only loved Jewish people, but loves Gentile people as well. How shocking that would have been for Nicodemus. Knowing full well that he was Israel's teacher, Jesus rebuked him, saying that he should have understood such things. Objection number two, from the fact that God does not show favoritism. Because God does not show partiality, everybody should have a chance to be saved. Acts 10.34 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. Again, this objection that God is not partial is not in individuals. It is in nations. Jews versus Gentiles. Much of the book of Acts, much of what happens in the New Testament in making the transitional idea that should have been prevalent in the Old Testament that the Jews should have gone out and proselytized the nations, you'll see this dichotomy back and forth many times, dealing with the idea of nations. God is not partial in that he's going to save the Jews only, but as a matter of fact, he's going to save Gentiles as well.
In fact, Chinese people and English people and Indian people and Brazilian people and all sorts of people. But that's not every individual person. Objection number three from the question of free will. There are no passages in the Bible anywhere that demonstrate that people are saved on their own accord by their own will. Take your Bible, take your concordance, look for it, you'll not find a single reference that demonstrates a person believing or being saved on their own, apart from the Spirit of God's work and God's regenerating power aforehand. You have to remember, men are sinful, men are wicked, Every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. His, de- his heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Man's will is in bondage. And as a result of it being in bondage because of the imputed unrighteousness of Adam to us, will is corrupted. And because the will is corrupted, it desires no good thing. It only has evil thoughts. And unless God comes in, And unless he regenerates the heart and he saves them, this idea of free will is a pipe dream. It doesn't exist, and men could never be saved apart from God's work. Think of it this way. Ask your semi-Pelagian friend the next time you're with him. When you go to heaven, will God take away your free will? Well, if he doesn't take away your free will in heaven, because no doubt the semi-Pelagian is going to tell you, no, I'm always going to have my free will, in in his theological view, he can lose his salvation. Once he gets to heaven, he must be also in that particular strain that when he gets to heaven, he will also have a free will. And when he gets to heaven, he may also make a mistake. I mean, ask him the question. He may, will you sin when you go in heaven? Well, no. Well, at what point did God take away your free will that you couldn't do what you want to do? Election teaches the utter preservance and utter preservation of the saints because of election. When you talk about semi-Pelagianism, you're talking really about secular humanists. Secular humanists who want to do what they want to do. But they don't have a, a free will. They freely are moral agents that choose according to their own heart's desire, certainly, but their heart's desire is to sin against God. They are free moral agents to sin against Him. And when they get to heaven... If they want to contend that their free will is still going to be intact, then you're going to have to point out that they could fall out of heaven as well. What kind of security is in that? None whatsoever. Objection number four. From the weeping of Christ for lost sinners in Luke 13.34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, many people take this thinking that, oh, Jesus extends this gracious gospel offer to all people, and you weren't willing, and thus people aren't saved as a result of your willingness and your power. Well, that's not what the text teaches. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. What Jesus is saying is that Jerusalem and In context here, it's the teachers and the elders and the scribes who are not teaching the people the way that they're supposed to. Jesus says, how often I want to gather your children. So Jerusalem is supposed to have children. Not children in Jerusalem, but children of Jerusalem. Children that are proselytized. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But they weren't willing. The elders, the scribes, the teachers, the Pharisees of Jerusalem should have gone out, should have gone out with the people to proselytize the nations, and instead they turned in on themselves. And instead of gathering children, they did the opposite. They pushed people away. And the Holy Christ, who is the great prophet, who should be saying things like this, who desires men to come to a knowledge of the truth, sees Jerusalem squandering salvation and as a result does not draw in her children. So the objection from the weeping of Christ over lost sinners is missing the entire point of the passage. Again, poor exegesis. Objection number five. From the long-suffering view that God wishes all to be saved. Does God wish things that he doesn't get? 
Ezekiel 31, 1 and following. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from the way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? This is an interesting passage. If God desires something that he doesn't get, he'll be frustrated. And that is incompatible with an unchangeable perfect God. If you want to have the God of open theism, or the God of Pelagianism, or the God of semi-Pelagianism, and you want to strip him of his perfection, of his immutability, of his righteousness, then believe that God desires things that he doesn't get. But if we're going to look at this verse, we have to understand it again in context. The Jews in Babylon, meeting with much hardship in their captivity, instead of being humbled for their sins, which brought sad miseries upon them, took up an unjust complaint against God and charged him to deal unjustly by them. In other words, that their fathers had sinned and they who were their children suffered for their father's sins. And they were innocent and they're being grievously afflicted for their iniquities. And this false charge God clears himself of in this chapter and shows them that he is most just in punishing and rewarding that every one shall bear his own sins and not another's be rewarded according to what he is and hath done be he just or unjust if the unjust repent of his evil ways he'll have mercy if the just turn from his righteousness he'll have judgment and this is the sum and main argument of the chapter having no pleasure well God is not a sadistic God it is not an enjoyable task, although it's a glorious task to damn people. He is speaking, as God would have spoke to Adam, that his law doesn't change. And the question here still revolves around the ability versus non-ability to turn and repent. The message is true, that if they repent, if they turn, if you turn away from your wicked ways, you'll live. Why should you die? But the means is God's Spirit in that God must send the Spirit and regenerate them. There are qu three questions. So I answer three questions this way. Who is God speaking to? Well, the answer, he's speaking to mixed Israel, his beloved covenant people, and those going apostate, in covenant with him. Secondly, why is he saying this to them, that he doesn't desire their death? Well, the answer to that his people have backslidden into sin and are about to be reproved by God's chastening hand, threatened with eternal death for breaking covenant, demonstrating their apostasy. Thirdly, what are God's intentions here? Answer. God's plea to them proves his compassion for them despite their wickedness. And he intends to kill them and eternally damn them if they don't repent. He would rather comparatively speaking see them repent that he may bestow a father's goodness on them instead of a judge's discipline the message is to national Israel God's covenanted people though it may be applied to sinners it is though comparative not absolute otherwise all would be saved if God desired all of them to be saved comparatively God desires their righteous living instead of their wayward transgressions. And most importantly, which must be stressed, I do believe God is speaking by his revealed will here in the divided sense, and not by his will of decree. Because if God decreed that he so desired the salvation of all the wicked and all those who sin, then all would be saved. So he's speaking comparatively here, that he would rather see this than that, which is why the Bible speaks of election much more than it speaks of reprobation. There's another verse, however, aside from Ezekiel, that the semi-Pelagians and Pelagians run to, and that's Second Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now the context here is the false teachers and this idea of long-suffering. So 
when we deal with the actual verse itself, we're finding that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What is his promise? That Christ is going to return and redeem all of his people ultimately into heaven and make them glorious. So some people were counting God's long-suffering on the earth as God being slow to promise and delivering his promises to us. But God is long-suffering toward us. And according to the scriptures, and this word us is his promises to his elect, not willing that any who is the any, the any is an antecedent to us, should perish, but that all who is the all, all is an antecedent to any, an antecedent to us, the church, but that all should come to repentance. Think of it this way. The reason for the long-suffering is that God wants all of his elect to be saved. If God were to come back now, and there were elect that would have been born into the world tomorrow, God would have reneged on his promise to save all of his elect. But God does not want any of us to perish, i.e., that is his elect. But rather, he wants all of them to come to repentance. Certainly, that is worked out through the Spirit of God. But... It's not talking about all people in general. It's talking about his elect. He is not long. He is not slack concerning his promises to come and redeem his elect, as some would so think. Rather, he wants all of us, all of his elect, to be saved, and that is what the promise is concerning. Or what of Matthew eighteen twelve to fourteen? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek that one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Well, you need to remember that there is a difference between sheep and goats. Jesus goes out to look for his sheep, but there are also goats. Remember Matthew 25. The goats will be separated. Some will go to his left, some will go to his right. The goats will go one way, the sheep will go the other. The goats go to hell, the sheep go to heaven. The goats are those who are lost. The sheep are those who are saved. So the question is, are we goats first and later sheep? No. Here we see that there are lost sheep and there are lost goats. And Jesus will go out and he will save his lost sheep. The goats, however, are goats. He doesn't go out after his goats. He, go out, he goes out after his sheep. Remember then that Jesus does go out and he does make an effort to save his sheep. And he does look everywhere and he goes after the one string. But these are his sheep. These are not his goats. As he told the Pharisees, you are not my sheep. Luke 2.10 And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Now, once you get in again to the article here, the, in the present tense, all of the people, it's ethnic groups, not individual people. Or, if we look at 1 Timothy 2.4, For this is a good and acceptable in sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, this is ethnic groups, not individual people. God desires the salvation of his people. He never has desires for things that don't come to pass. God is lacking something he wishes if they don't. But God's plan shall never be thwarted. Isaiah 46.11 says, Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. The literalness of the verse cannot be all men for all time, forever, even those in hell, even Pharaoh, even Judas, even Esau. The idea is nations, again, dealing with ethnic groups. Good news, great joy for all the people, all ethnic groups. He desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All kinds of people. There are always problems with verses if we want to say in Luke 2 or 1 Timothy 2, 4 that all means all. All means all people for all time, every individual including Esau, Pharaoh, and everybody else. 
Because if we go into verses with just taking a blanket statement of all, meaning all for all time of all peoples, then we have a problem when we go to all of these other verses. John 12:32, And I, if I am raised up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now, if that means all people for all time, then no one will be in hell, and Jesus is a liar, because he specifically told us that the rich man was in hell. Luke 11:42, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. If all means all, I'm curious as to how the Pharisees got herbs that were all over the earth. Because there are herbs here in the United States that are not in Israel. And there are herbs in Japan that are not in Israel. So how did they get them all? Acts 2.17 And if shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. All here cannot be all. Is God going to pour out his spirit on all flesh? All individuals? All of those in hell? Pharaoh, Esau, Judas, all? Does all mean all? Well, no. All is kinds. All kinds of people. All nations. It's not limited to a certain number of Jewish people. It's bigger than that. Thus, the whole question surrounding the all in many of the verses that we find throughout the New Testament and Old Testament demonstrate that you must see all as kinds. You must be a good exegete of the scriptures and not simply take things at face value without putting any thought to it. Objection number six from the invitations of Christ being needless in Revelation. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. This has been a massive proof text for people in the semi-Pelagian, Arminian, and Pelagian camps to demonstrate that God so desires all of these people, if they would just respond, he would come in and dine with them. However, they forget that this particular verse was written to the church at Sardis. And the Greek tense deals with that particular church in that particular place at that particular time. He stands at the door, and he's knocking on the door of the church. And if they don't repent from the things that they are apostatizing on, he'll remove their lampstand. It has absolutely nothing to do with all people. Revelation 22.17 And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And again, this is used as an open-air evangelism, kind of. Anybody, who, anybody, anywhere, of all kinds, of all peoples, from all times, this is the kind of God that we serve, who's indiscriminate in his offer, and yet also desires all people to be saved. Well, they're missing the point. And let him who thirsts come. Who are those that are thirsty? Go back to John 3. Jesus says, unless a man is born again. So they have to be born first. Whoever desires, I mean, the scripture is right, exactly what it says. Those who are thirsty, those who desire, let him come and take of the water of life freely. But how do they become thirsty? How do they desire? Well, God must first regenerate them. So the invitations of Christ and revelation in this way must be set in their proper context. Objection number seven from questioning the need for evangelism. The idea is, well, if God elects, and if he damns, then nobody has a choice, and thus evangelism is futile. Actually, it's quite the reverse. The Arminian and the Semi-Pelagian and the Pelagian go out, and they try by their own effort to convince. How miserable are people who try to make other people saved? I heard one preacher say that he would crawl on his hands and knees across a cobblestone street if you would just come and be saved. But Paul's argument that's continued in Romans 10:13 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace! who bring glad tidings of good news. 
but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed their report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we find that it's the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless, because God not only ordains that men be saved, but he also ordains the manner in which that salvation will occur. The means to the end is also given, not just the end. So not only does it make evangelism meaningless, it's not meaningless whatsoever. It is actually more meaningful as a result of understanding it biblically because it shows the sovereignty of God in his grace demonstrating the sending of those preachers out which is the means by which one will hear by which the regeneration that's already taken place will allow them to desire and thirst after the truth of God's word. Objection number eight. The foreknowledge view. God sees those he will choose first believing by faith. Thus, election is based on their faith. Listen to some of these verses. Or rather, listen to Romans 8, 24 and 30, this particular section. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these also he glorified. Now, if it's everybody that he foreknew that would simply be elect, then God's decree is based on the creature. And Paul is totally wrong to base election in Romans 9 upon God's choice of choosing Jacob over Esau, as he demonstrates. So this is going to throw off his entire argument if you run down the Pelagian, Arminian, or semi-Pelagian idea of election based on foreknowledge. It's not that God foreknew, as in he saw something ahead of time. God sees everything ahead of time. He knows all things ahead of time. So if he, if you base it on that, and you run through the golden chain, then everybody's going to be saved, because God foreknew all people. So it's not just simply foreknowing. It's just not omniscience beforehand. Rather, listen to some of these verses. Amos 3.2 you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now wait, wait, wait. I thought God was omnipotent. How is it that only the Jewish people are known by God? Well, because the word known means love, intimacy, relationship. Genesis 4.1 Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now hang on here a second. Simply put, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she had a son. Well, knew doesn't mean just to know. It means to intimately be joined to Eve. And obviously, through sexual relations, she conceived. So no means this intimate love that Adam had for Eve, like the intimate love that God has for his people whom he knows. First Peter 1, 1 to do. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This foreknowledge is not simply knowing, it's foreloving, which is why Paul can say, for those he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined. Because it can't be some of those he foreknew, because we know that God knows everyone. So it can't be some, because if we interject the word some into Romans 8, that's not going to work either. For some he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed. Moreover, some he predestined, he also called. Whom some he called, he also justified. And some he justified, he also glorified. That ruins the entire point of the passage and makes God impotent, impotent to save. Some he saved, some he justified. Those he predestined, only some he was able to. It absolutely destroys these ideas. So it's not based on foreknowledge in that particular manner. It's based on foreknowing as in foreloving, having an intimate relationship with. And as a result, these people are going to be saved. And looking at these eight objections you should very easily then be able to see quite clearly that we are vindicating the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and vindicating the sovereignty of God for those who had changed the truth of the gospel into a lie. The, the sweetness of the gospel lies in God's ability to save, God's ability to do that, not man's ability to will or run according to his power. Man has no power. 
he is depraved he has evil thoughts only his heart is wicked he is not upholding the glory of God in such things rather the Lord God must save regenerate first thus as a result these objections fall to the floor once one simply understands God's attributes and man's fallenness these objections come to nothing and are actually very easy to deal with once you understand the scope of the scriptures in general thus so much for Pelagian Arminian and semi-Pelagian objections Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.